Welcome back to Books with Bert. I'm Bert Folsom with my book, New Deal or Raw Deal. And the title of today's podcast is What Historians Won't Tell You About the First System of Welfare Under Franklin Roosevelt. But before we get to today's episode, I want to remind you that if you like my podcasts and you want to learn more wonderful and forgotten stories in American history, don't forget to rate and review my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get podcasts. It really helps. And don't forget to share with your friends and family, too. In the Great Depression, unemployment hit 25% under Presidents Roosevelt and Hoover. And in 1932, Congress passed the first federal welfare program in American history to get money to hungry Americans. For most historians, such federal spending was not only justified, but was a wonderful use of tax dollars. The unemployed are hungry. Let's get them cash to buy food. That's what the historians say. But there is much more to the federal welfare story. And today, I want to explain what historians don't tell you about America's first system of welfare. As we know, the Great Depression was the worst economic catastrophe in United States history. And as the Great Depression worsened, unemployment skyrocketed. And many began to ask, how will the jobless get enough food to eat? What should be done about relief? And by the way, the term used for what we call today welfare, uh, the term was relief that was used back in the 1930s. Now, throughout American history, right from the start, charity had been a state and local function. Civic leaders, local clergy, and private citizens evaluated the legitimacy of people's needs in their communities or counties. Churches and other organizations could then provide food, shelter, and clothing to help victims of fire or women abandoned by drunken husbands or other severe cases of poverty. Most Americans believed that face-to-face encounters of givers and receivers of charity benefited both groups. It created just the right amount of uplift and relief and discouraged laziness and a poor work ethic. The founders all saw relief as local and voluntary. The Constitution gives no federal role for the federal government in providing charity. James Madison, in defending the Constitution, wrote, No man is allowed to be a judge in his own cause because his interest would certainly bias his judgment and not improbably corrupt his integrity. In other words, if relief and other areas were made functions of the federal government, the process would become politicized and politicians and deadbeats would conspire to trade votes for food. As Madison also asked, what are the different classes of legislators but advocates and parties to the causes which they determine. In the 1800s, this is very early in U.S. history, 
Voluntary organizations such as the Red Cross and the Salvation Army were formed to give food, shelter, clothing, and spiritual help to individuals and groups that faced crises. Sometimes, of course, Congress was tempted to play politics with relief, but they rarely did so. The constitutional view of relief, however, would strongly be challenged in the 1930s under the Great Depression. In a way, if you think about this discussion, should we have federal aid for relief, it's a contradiction in thinking. If the government programs such as the Smoot-Hawley Tariff and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates help spark the Great Depression, is government spending likely to be the cure? Politicians, however, talk little about repealing the government programs that caused the Great Depression. Instead, the politicians talked about bringing federal tax dollars into their states. The law that brought the federal government into the relief business was called the Emergency Relief and Construction Act of 1932. Under this act, Congress made $300 million, which is comparable to at least $4 billion today, available to states whose governors and public officials requested help. Technically, this money was to be a loan, but most believed, as Senator Robert Wagner of New York predicted, quote, that the repayment would never take place so that, in effect, the $300 million, if we look at it realistically, was a gift to the states, end quote. Most governors seem to have accepted Senator Wagner's public invitation. They began a frantic scramble to get as much of the $300 million as they could. Granted, some states had more people and greater problems than other states, but the formula of allowing states to request funds if they would submit evidence of needs was a system that invited abuse. All states had high unemployment, and all governors could show ample evidence of many thousands of ill-fed citizens. Many governors therefore rushed to claim as much cash as they could. Every federal dollar a governor could get into his state meant that private citizens within that state did not have to pay out of their own pockets for that welfare. That helps explain the frequent imbalance between the population of a state and the amount of federal aid it received. Because some small states got large amounts of aid, some large states got smaller amounts of aid. The most flagrant example of abuse in federal relief was the state of Illinois, which was able to secure over 55 million, or almost 20% of the entire $300 million. Illinois' huge sum was more than that of New York, Texas, and California combined. In fact, Illinois and Pennsylvania received almost one-third of all of the $300 million. Or put another way, Illinois' huge sum was more than that of the combined amount received by more than half of the states in the United States. 
So right away, we have an imbalance with a disproportionate amount of money going to key political states like Illinois, which Roosevelt wanted to carry in 1936. Interestingly, Massachusetts, a smaller but almost comparable state to Illinois in population, neither asked for nor received any federal money. Zero. Boston and many other parts of Massachusetts had serious needs for relief, but Massachusetts Governor Joseph Ely and other state officials still believed that relief should be a local and state function. That's what the Constitution intended. Ely and the leaders of Massachusetts constantly worked to raise local money for local needs. A statewide unemployment drive, for example, raised over $3 million. The Boston Civic Symphony repeatedly gave concerts to benefit the jobless. Boston College and Holy Cross played an exhibition football game for charity in 1931. A benefit wrestling match at Boston Garden supplied $5,000 for local needs. City officials helped Mayor James Curley of Boston raise a remarkable $2.5 million, that would be about $40 million today, from city employees. Even the city's school teachers donated 2% of their salaries for six months in 1931 to feed the poor. Historian Charles Trout, who studied Boston's amazing efforts to meet local needs, wrote, quote, no major city assisted so high a percentage of its jobless as Boston did in the early 1930s. Five other states, mostly in New England, joined Massachusetts. They raised money locally and took none of the $300 million offered under the Emergency Act. In effect, what that meant was that Massachusetts not only paid for all of its own relief, but for part of Illinois' relief as well. That is a critical point, and I need to say it again. Massachusetts not only paid for all of its own relief, but for part of Illinois' as well. The $300 million in government money was largely raised by taxes on businesses and personal income, and also taxes on cars, cigarettes, and movie tickets. Most adults in Massachusetts were forced to contribute some of this federal tax revenue, but many also paid local and state taxes to feed the unemployed within the borders of Massachusetts. Thus, the people of Massachusetts were taxed twice. In effect, then, the federalizing of relief shifted funds from the frugal and thrifty states like Massachusetts, Nebraska, and Maryland to the inefficient and manipulative states like Illinois, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. The Emergency Relief Act passed under President Hoover very late in his administration it was implemented and expanded under President Roosevelt. He was the one who presided over it. He signed the bills that sharply increased funding available to states. Almost all governors and many mayors began lobbying to receive large chunks from Roosevelt's new Federal Emergency Relief Administration 
abbreviated F-E-R-A. This historic shift to using federal dollars for local relief profoundly affected the American work ethic. Before the Roosevelt presidency, state and city leaders had incentives to be frugal with charities. They took care of their own, and in emergencies, they sometimes received assistance from national charities, private charities, such as the Red Cross or the Salvation Army. During the New Deal years, states had new incentives to look to Washington to solve their relief needs. In fact, they had incentives to do a poor job raising local funds and then exaggerate their needs. That way, they could secure more cash for their states and disperse the costs of raising the taxes to cover these funds to other states. These new political realities were not lost on Massachusetts. Governor Ely, who had asked for no funds in 1932, was replaced in 1934 by Governor Curley, who eagerly pleaded tales of woe to Washington to finally bring vast amounts of federal money to Massachusetts. By 1935, Massachusetts had solicited and received more than $114 million in federal funds for relief. That's more than twice what Illinois received under the first dollop of cash in the original bill. Under President Roosevelt, the relief system was somewhat changed to, so that states had to provide some matching money to receive federal money. But Harry Hopkins, who is the director of this relief program, had discretionary power to allow some governors to supply little or no matching state money. Again, there were incentives for governors to exaggerate needs and downplay their ability to supply matching money. Such a system tended to make liars out of everyone. Governors and mayors would shed abundant tears telling Hopkins and Roosevelt of their financial hardships. Hopkins and Roosevelt then listened and pretended to disperse FERA money solely on the basis of need and not on any political considerations. Professors Jim Couch and William Shugart studied New Deal relief in detail and concluded that poor states often had to contribute more state funding for their relief than did richer states. Tennessee, for example, had to contribute one-third of its total funding for relief. But richer Pennsylvania had to supply only one-tenth of its total funding. The key point here is that Tennessee, as part of the Solid South, was a safe Democrat state. Pennsylvania, however, went for Hoover in 1932, and Roosevelt wanted to lure it into the Democratic fold in 1936. Joseph Ely, now the former governor of Massachusetts, watched this new trend with dismay. He said, quote, Whatever the justification for relief, the fact remains that the way in which it has been used makes it the greatest political asset on the practical side of party politics ever held by any administration. Another problem 
with federal relief was that it encouraged those who could not find work to give up trying. Relief was no longer received from local charities, where local officials could be hands-on in assessing real need. Relief now came from Washington, and if some people abused the system, it cost local citizens very little to let it continue. Governor Ely was sad to see such a change of attitude, even in his state of Massachusetts. And he said, and I quote, To be on relief for a few months was a boon to be extended by a great government to a patient people. But to be told that you are to be on relief for the rest of your days is to destroy the hope and therefore the morale of the people, end quote. Ely observed that, quote, millions of men and women have come to believe that there is no hope for them except on a government payroll. In the state of Connecticut, Governor Wilbur Cross, like Governor Ely next door, asked for no tax dollars for relief under the original 1932 appropriation. However, once Governor Cross saw the new political system under Franklin Roosevelt in the New Deal, Cross decided to pursue federal dollars. He said, and I quote, I recall the excitement occasioned by the first federal grant from Harry Hopkins for more than $850,000 in relief, end quote. He went on to say, quote, this was but the beginning of monthly grants. Once the federal faucet had been turned on, Governor Cross decided to increase the flow and run again for governor of Connecticut. Republicans, however, challenged Governor Cross and the new system of relief. They argued against, quote, the use within Connecticut of federal funds to purchase a surrender of rights reserved to this state. Cross, however, defended the new federal system vigorously. Am I to understand, Cross said, if you Republicans come into power, you intend to dam up this flow of federal funds and to start a flow of your own by an enormous increase in state and local taxation? Have you considered, the governor asked, that the citizens of Connecticut are paying federal income taxes which nearly match the grants and loans of the national government? In the long run, it will be an even break whether you like it or not. End quote. Given the large slice of revenue that went to support the mushrooming bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., Cross was actually optimistic to assume that his state, Connecticut, or any other state could break even. Governor Cross had a remarkable political odyssey. In 1932, he stood with Governor Ely. Massachusetts and Connecticut were two of the six states that asked for and received no federal aid for relief. To save money in Connecticut, in fact, Governor Cross had cut his own salary 14%, and he tried to get the state legislators to do the same with theirs. He spent his days glumly searching his state budget for expenses to trim and jobs to cut. 
By 1938, however, he was merrily guiding a parade of federal grants into his state and even having one of the highways through which they would come named after him. Most other politicians approached federal relief more or less like Governor Cross. What I'm suggesting here is this new system of federal relief was a disaster. It did not really feed new people. It simply redistributed the food from Massachusetts, which had to pay taxes and received no relief, to Illinois, which had a huge request. The number of citizens who were poor or hungry were about the same. They were, as I say, redistributed from one state to another, depending on how effective the governor of the state was in soliciting federal funds. That's why unemployment remained high throughout the 1930s, and it's why hunger persisted throughout the 1930s. More than this, though, is the problem of government and relief that removes the face-to-face help that people used to receive from local charities. The founders, when they refused to have any federal money for charity written into the Constitution, were not callous people. They understood human nature. There's a negative part to human nature, which says, hey, if I get a subsidy, I have not much incentive to get up and work. But the positive side of this is, if somebody does give me some help when I'm down and out, if that person responds with aid of his own money, then I respond with gratitude, thanking the person for taking out of his own pocket to help me get back on my feet. That response which says, we believe in you, we want to help you, is lost when you simply have federal checks that go from Washington to the states. Or later, it would be from Washington to individuals. People don't have any sense of gratitude to any particular people for the money they received. Thus, the system of relief or welfare, as it developed in the 1930s, had very negative political consequences in the United States. Relief, which began to be federalized in the 1930s, would persist in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. The outlays would become bigger And thus, you have the politics of welfare becoming a very large business. You have a poverty industry being created. And you have large taxes being raised to support this money. And the taxes that are raised to support the money for welfare cannot be used to start businesses, which could be used to employ the people who are on welfare and thus become a win-win for the entrepreneur who has more money to invest and for the person who is down and out who now has a greater possibility of a job being offered to him. This system of the government and relief is important and I have some books to recommend. I talked about Boston and how Boston was a remarkable city in supporting the welfare of that city without seeking federal help. The book on this that's very good is by Charles Trout, and it's entitled Boston, The Great Depression, and the New Deal. Another 
book that I cited and want to talk about here is Jim Crouch and William Shugart's book, The Political Economy of the New Deal. Finally, I found very helpful the book by Governor Joseph Ely. He received no welfare in his state. He finally stepped down as governor. He wrote a book called The American Dream. And that concludes today's episode of Books with Bert. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or any other place where you get podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. And if you liked today's episode and you want to find more content to fill your heart with love for America and conservative ideas, be sure to check out YAF.org. The conservative movement starts here. Until next time, keep reading.